Hey there, Conquerors. Mike here, and welcome to episode 72 of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today is Mr. Michael Mapes, and not only is Michael the CEO of Exile, a global leader of impact extruded containers, you'll find out what that means a little later, but he's also studied at both Harvard and London Business School, as well as spent time as a consultant for McKinsey & Company, and we definitely think you'll learn a lot from this episode, so we hope you enjoy it. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today is uh, Mr. Michael Mapes. He's the CEO of Exile Corporation, which is headquartered in Youngstown. And Exile is the world's leading manufacturer of impact extruded containers, mainly aerosol cans and beverage bottles. And Michael received his executive and business management education at both the London School, uh, sorry, London Business School and Harvard Business School. And he's held a wide variety of roles from an investment banking analyst at Merrill Lynch to consulting for McKinsey & Company. And he had spent a 10-year stint with a company called Greif, 
before becoming CEO of Excel, and we're really excited to have him on the show. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, we appreciate you stopping by on a Friday uh, evening. You know, not everybody's always willing to do it, but it's always a lot of fun, I feel like, the Friday ones because everyone's a little more relaxed. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's a good way to start the weekend. Definitely, definitely. So kind of one of the first questions we always like to start with is what's a typical day look like for you today? A typical day, it's a tough question because every day is a little different for me. Uh, being responsible for a global business, uh, the days uh, are, are very wide and varying depending on whether I'm meeting with customers or whether I'm in my factories uh, with employees, whether uh, I'm out with suppliers or uh, out of industry events. So each day is a little bit different. Uh, but. You know, most importantly, I'm trying to make sure that I'm focused on engaging the, the workforce, making sure we're delivering value to customers, and ultimately uh, trying to make each day a little better than the last one. So let's talk a little bit about the global aspect. What are some of the challenges you guys are facing, you know, across the different areas within your companies, um, and how do they differ from the aspects that you're dealt with here in the United States? Yeah, so we our, our manufacturing um, locations are, are in Brazil. Uh, we've got a big factory in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We have three factories actually in Argentina, two in Buenos Aires and one in the Patagonia region. Uh, and then we have a, a big factory in Youngstown, Ohio that serves all of North America. And then we have a small joint venture in India. Uh, every uh, region that we operate is a little bit different uh, depending on what's going on with the local economy and the environment that we're in. For example, when I first joined Excel back in January last year, uh, actually right, right after I, I joined, the Argentinian economy uh, collapsed with a change in government. We saw about a 60% devaluation in the currency um, and, and had to, to work with our customers to help manage do that. You probably have, may have heard of some of the recent macroeconomic challenges that are taking place in, uh, in Brazil, and we're working through, through those as well. So. You know, really managing a global business, you have to really understand uh, what's going on in each local economy, but how that also impacts um, the rest of your, your operations outside of the area that you're in. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but with those macroeconomic uh, changes in Brazil, we're talking, I think it's deflation, right? We're having a serious deflation of the... the uh... Yeah, and well, and if you look at what's happening right now in, in uh, Brazil, it's actually heading the other direction. We've, the got, other direction. we've got um, an economy now that's actually picking back up. The stock market over the last few months has actually accelerated, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, you know, in Argentina, it's a bit more stable now as well. Um, right. But, you know, down in Argentina and Brazil in particular, there's a lot of volatility, so you don't know mm -hmm. what's going to happen from one day to the next. So with a headquarters here in the United States, how does that affect like the labor rates that you're paying employees down there and things? Does it really have as large of an impact on you since your roots are in the States? Yeah, for us, um, actually, each of our factories service the local environment that we're in. So our customer base down in Brazil, our factory services those customers. And our, our customers in, in Argentina, they're getting served from our Argentinian factory. Uh, in the US, we serve all of North America. And fortunately, we're actually in a position where uh, you don't necessarily hear this very often with a lot of companies. But for us, we're, we're doing really well down in South America, so, so much so that we're actually shipping product that we're making in Youngstown and sending it down to Brazil right now. So it's a, it's a great, you know, great opportunity for the folks in Youngstown to be able to provide the products even outside of North American market. Yeah, so we kind of threw the book at you here. We, we had an outline for this. We <laughs> completely threw it out. 
the window. Let's kind of step back. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about maybe uh, life before Excel yeah. and kind of growing up. Why did you go to school? Mm-hmm. And you know maybe your experience at uh, Harvard and London at yeah. kind of a high level. Yeah, no, maybe I'll just start uh, growing up. I'm actually from Columbus. Grew up here in, uh, in Dublin, Ohio, uh, born and raised, and actually went to Dublin High School uh, before we had two high schools, which we have three now. Uh, and I was actually in the first graduating class at Dublin Scioto uh, High School in 1996. So um, I really ha- had a, a, an enjoyable time growing up. I grew up, uh, my mother was a teacher and my father was a, a computer programmer analyst. Uh, I had two, uh, two younger brothers growing up and you know some of the things that shaped my uh, belief system is I was fortunate to have that mother as a, uh, as a, uh, as a teacher. Uh, and she really instilled a level of discipline in me and my brothers that has uh, carried us to this day. Um, my mother actually passed away when I was in high school and it gave me more of a, a drive to, to be successful. Um, I got an opportunity to go to Northwestern University on a um, scholarship and um, you know that was a phenomenal opportunity for me but unfortunately it was only half the tuition was paid for so I actually had to work full-time while I was going to school, ended up, that's where I actually landed some uh, job opportunities with Merrill Lynch. I first started off in private client services for them while I was working through school and ultimately got to do investment banking while I was working at Northwestern. So some really cool experiences there in Chicago um, while going to school. I studied, like I said, industrial engineering and economics there at Northwestern, Um, but ultimately for me, I, I knew that I wanted to um, one day become CEO of a company. So uh, leaving Northwestern, I felt like management consulting would best position me for that. So I got an opportunity to work for a company called Mercer Management Consulting based out of, uh, well, they're global operations, but the office I worked out of was, was out of Washington, D.C. Uh, so that was really my first first job out of, out of school. So uh, that's a quick, quick, quick background about me and, and Columbus and going to school. Uh, while I was in, in Dublin, I played uh, a few sports. I uh, really enjoyed playing soccer, played soccer growing up and did that through through high school. And, um, you know, it's it's good to be back here uh, in, in Columbus after being away for a while. Uh, I actually have five children. I'm married, have five children that are four, six, eight, 10, 12, and 14. Uh, sorry, I say four, six, eight. That's six, isn't it? I can't right, even yeah, keep track of my kids. Right? On my fingers so like, wait they're, a minute. They're, they're six, eight, 10, 12, and 14. You tricked um, me. <laughs> uh, just seeing if you guys were paying attention. Right. Um, but they're actually playing soccer on Saturdays now, so it kind of, you know, it's going back to my roots and reminding me of my days playing soccer back in Dublin. Yeah, it's very exciting. We actually just had uh, Frankie... Hayduck, I think I believe is how you pronounce Hayuk. it on the show from the Columbus Crew. If you guys go to any of their games, oh, wow. and uh, he is another level of energy. Yeah, he I is bet. I awesome bet. Awesome guy. <laughs> he's pretty fun. It, it was a lot of fun. I don't think I, you know, he was just all over the place. And and, he, and funnily enough, our when he came in, our beer keg wasn't working, and I can't even imagine him when he's had a few beers. It's <laughs> a guy who's got to be wild. Um, but something you mentioned there, you talked a little about landing an investment banking role yeah. while still in your undergrad career. And I think, yeah. you know, some people struggle getting out of graduate school and landing a role like that. So what do you yeah. think it was that was sitting you in front of these people and wanting them to offer you scholarships or high-level positions that yeah. required, you know, an uh, intricate level of intelligence? 
Yeah, you know, I think it's a great question. I, for, for me, it was all about perseverance and just um, working really, really hard. Everything that I've done throughout my career, I've, I've had to work really, really hard. Um, I was never the smartest guy in the class, although I did extremely well in school and extremely well in undergrad um, and, and did well in high school. Uh, but it was all just just hard work. I, I studied and studied and studied. I played af uh, pl you know played different sports, um, and after that I studied studied late and uh, it was just through discipline. So the opportunity that came up for me that was a game changer was I was actually my freshman year I was actually working at uh, at Northwestern University at their athletic department um, in their football program, and I, I was just you know, locking up doors after everyone was done with practice and I'd stand out on sidelines holding cords during the football games and all that sort of stuff. It was nothing intellectual, but sounds like know. my football experience. <laughs> except, except I was on I was supposed to be on the team. Right. <laughs> but uh, no I so I got that that job opportunity and then then there was a posting actually for Merrill Lynch there um, uh, at Northwestern. Uh, at the football complex, and I, I pick up the phone and I, I called Merrill Lynch, and the rest is history. I got an intern opportunity there in their private client group. And I think that that opportunity, just working hard for those guys, they put in a good recommendation for me, went through the interview process in the invest, investment banking division, and you know I think I just got lucky. Um, but sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, I guess, right? Yeah, bring, I'll take all the luck I can get. Right. So I, another thing I'm curious about too, so. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel very similar when you say I, I think that I've never been the smartest person in the room by any means. I've always had to study really hard, and now that I'm um, in the process of getting my MBA, my goal when I get out is to go apply for a McKinsey and do some management consulting because I'd like to run yeah. somebody else's company or my own company someday. Yeah. But I think as I'm going through that process, you know, one worry that I've had is that when I'm sitting down in the room with these Harvard graduates or these other people that are top level, like competing with them has got to be, you know, it's another level. So I'm curious to hear through your consulting experiences how did you compete with people like that and uh, maybe what are some of the most unique experiences or business problems that you faced that really stick out to you to this day so listen you know anytime in life whether it's it's you know when you're a classroom or whether you're on a team whether you're in business it doesn't matter where, you, where you're at um, there's always going to be someone that's better than you that's someone that um, is, is someone that you want to you know, try to try to live up to, or and there's also going to be people that are putting you down every step of the way. So, for me, um, what I always say is, you, you got to follow your passion first and foremost, and you got to live by what I've always lived by—a golden rule of just treat people the way you want to be treated. And if you if you're a good person, fundamentally a good person, and you get on with people, um, I think that's gonna that's gonna carry the day uh, a, a lot more than. Than, than the guy who's the smartest guy in the room. Sometimes the smartest people in the room, they, they can't sit and actually influence um, people uh, to get things done. And you know, if you're, if you're looking at an opportunity to work for a company like McKinsey, or um, if you're trying to go to a top business school, they're, they're not just gonna look at what your grades were. They're gonna look at how you actually get on with people, how you can make a difference, and what's special about you. What what is unique about you that that can help um, you know take the the team to the next level, and and that's the key. Everyone's got their own little special um, you know special uh, piece of 
um, you know, their personality or, or their, their skill set that they got to bring to the table. But the key is how do you convey that and make sure that, that people can see it in an interview process? Yeah, and I think another thing altogether is, you know, people early on in their careers maybe are struggling to find that, that niche, that niche, niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a couple ways you can pronounce it's that. very sure which one. It's a big debate in, in the science community especially, but never mind that. Um, but so where you find your niche um, and how do you kind of work those skills and those, those mm-hmm. traits out of yourself to uh, get to the point where you can leverage them in an interview? Well, I, I think when you're, when you're early in your career, I, I, I really encourage people just to get out there and try as many things as possible and just fail just fail 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 just try as many things you can see what you like see what makes you happy and ultimately you know um, I, I was uh, lucky to hear from uh, a mentor early in my career that said you know the, the strengths aren't the things that you're good at um, and your weaknesses aren't the things that are that you're bad at your strengths are the things that when you get up every day they give you strength they give you energy they give you passion for what you're doing. And your weaknesses are the things that drain your energy. So don't spend time trying to make your weaknesses better. Spend time making your strengths something that you're focused on day in and day out because that's what's going to give you the energy, give you the passion to be successful in what you do. Now, the key is trying to figure that out. And you got to try a lot of different things to see what it is that, that you really like, especially early on in your career. So a little bit about your time at McKinsey. Um, what are some of the different projects you're working on there, and what are some of them that kind of mm-hmm. uh, really stand out to you to this day? For me, uh, while I was at McKinsey, I uh, had the opportunity to, to uh, serve a number of clients across industries on sales and marketing transformations. Uh, Is that and, where you felt and, like your strengths were? And that's what, yeah, for me, I've always been a bit more commercially focused. Um, I've always enjoyed being out in front of customers, being out in front of people, um, selling. I just love it. It gives me energy. It gives me passion. Uh, and, and so while I was at McKinsey, I got the opportunity to really help organizations improve their sales and marketing capability, to help to continue drive profitable growth. And with that experience, that actually led me to the opportunity at Greif because I was actually serving Greif on a uh, massive transformation back in the early 2000s to totally transform the entire company. Um, and, and that gave me the opportunity, their, their uh, executive team uh, hired me from McKinsey to, to join Grave. So, um, you know, I was able to continue to follow my passion and, and, and build upon that through my career there. So let's talk a little bit about Grave then and, and kind of what they do, what is the company and what's uh, their goal, what do they do, and you moved up your way up through the company yeah. over the years, so can we kind of give it like a 10,000 foot overview? Yeah, so Greif is a global leader in industrial packaging. They make um, drums, uh, fiber, plastic, and steel drums, mostly for the chemicals and petrochemicals industry. They also have a paper uh, packaging uh, group that, um, that that has the mills that make the paper and ultimately uh, converted into uh, corrugated containers. So they have, they have operations all over the world. And uh, when I joined the company, it was a, a little less than a billion and a half in sales. Um, and they, were, they had just acquired a major 
uh, company in over, over in Europe that actually doubled the size of the business and made them truly global uh, for the first time. And uh, I, I always loved that global experience, just being at a company that had that, that, that breath. And, um, you know, while I was there, I just, I, I got, I got really lucky to uh, fall into a, a, a tremendous executive team that was there. And um, I got to do a lot of really, really cool things, um, starting with leading the commercial excellence uh, transformation program across the entire company, and then getting the opportunity to, to lead a number of businesses throughout, uh, throughout the company. Uh, first starting in North America and ultimately ending with a, a stint that I had um, over living in the Netherlands for four years with my family. So um, really, really loved the opportunity there at Greif. So we're kind of bouncing all over the place, and I apologize for this, keeping you, keeping you on your toes no, a little too right. bit, but uh, we'll fill up that beer, beer cup again, and then we'll be good. But talking about, you said you did a consulting project for them. What do you think it was about what you were doing on that project that said, you know, we want to bring this person on board full time? Yeah, so while I was at uh, Serving Greif, uh, I was leading the Commercial Excellence Transformation uh, Program for them. And I think, you know, I think what they saw is someone that was really passionate and excited about making a difference in the company um, and, and really delivering value to the client. Uh, I think first and foremost, they saw the value that I was providing to, to them and their team. Uh, but I think secondly, they saw that I would be a good fit with the culture that Greif has. Um, and lastly, I was, I was from Columbus, and I was actually working for, uh, for McKinsey in the Cleveland office, and they took a chance to say, hey, could, could this guy actually consider leaving McKinsey and uh, coming back to Columbus? So the stars all aligned, and, and it worked well for, for everyone. But it was also mutual, to, to be honest. I mean, for me, uh, one of my toughest career decisions was leaving McKinsey. I was on a really great trajectory there. McKinsey's just a phenomenal, phenomenal company where I learned so much uh, every day that I was there. Uh, and for me, it was it was hard to get off of that, um, you know, that that ride, if you will, uh, to to join a corporation uh, other than other than McKinsey. But uh, what I saw at Greif was something really special, I actually. And I'd encourage any um, any person as they're looking at switching careers or, or moving into a, a different role to, to really consider a few things. And for me, it's you know number one is the company growing? Is it is it going somewhere? Is it on an exciting trajectory? One number two is there. You know if you're going to join that team, are you going to work for someone that is also moving? In the organization, or, or are they stuck? If they're moving and they're um, doing really well, then most likely, if they like you and you're doing a good job, they'll take you with them. So that's really important. And and also, is there's going to be someone that's going to mentor you and look out for you and help develop you and and help you progress in your career. And then lastly, are are you getting into a role or position that's exciting, that's going to be stimulating, that you're going to learn something from, and you're going to be excited to go to work every day. And for me, that those ingredients were in place to get me to want to leave McKinsey to join Greif. And, and that's the same formula I've looked at throughout my career and, and every job that I've gone into. Um, and, and I think, you know, I would encourage anyone looking at a change to, to keep those ingredients in mind. 
So I think another thing that we skipped over that's a really monumental part of your life and an awesome thing that you've achieved is your time at Harvard and your time at London. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit about your path to getting into both those programs yeah. and then what your experiences were like. In them. Yeah, so for me, I, um, I did it a little bit non-traditionally, um, m- meaning that I didn't actually go to those schools to, to seek out my MBA. What I did is I, um, I had actually worked at Mercer Management Consulting, then I had an opportunity to work at a private equity firm at Bain Capital at one of their portfolio companies. And after that, I ended up at McKinsey. And by the time I left McKinsey to join Greif, I was already at a point where um, if I went to business school, I would be taking a step back. So I was um, at a point where I always knew that I wanted to go back to one of these higher um, education institutions. Uh, I'm a perpetual learner. I- I'm always, always looking to, uh, to learn every day, um, but also both formally and informally. Uh, for me to go to the next level, I wanted to go to Harvard first. As I took over my first general manager role when I was at Greif, I went to the executive team at Greif and told them that I would like to go to Harvard Business School and I'd like for them to sponsor me uh, to do that. And I was fortunate in that they did. And so I got that opportunity to go to the general management program for executives at Harvard Business School, did that. Um, it was a phenomenal experience and it was something that really helped me um, be most prepared for that first general manager role. Uh, The London Business School uh, uh, opportunity was much later in in my career there. And again, it was at Greif, it was at the tail end while I was a CEO of a 50-50 joint venture uh, for for Greif and another company. Um, I was at a point where I wanted to really go to a senior executive program with other CEOs, other presidents, other chief operating officers to hone in my executive leadership skills. And that London business program, the senior executive program there is really designed for for that. So um, the experiences were, were very different, very unique. I was living over in Europe at the time of the London Business School uh, program and, and for me it was a real opportunity to you know, take my skills to the next level, but also just really get uh, a broader global network and different uh, different point of view from the European side. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious about kind of what were the major differences between how you know Harvard Business School approaches the the classes and the structure versus yeah. London. Yeah, so Harvard Business School really is focused on the case study method. Uh, it's it's really really it was a lot more intense, a lot more. Uh, reading and prep work and, um, you know, into the evenings, late into the evenings, working in, in, in groups uh, nonstop. London Business School, uh, we did cases as well, but it wasn't so heavily focused on that case study method. They, they had more of a balance, I would say, between, um, between the classroom time, which was intense as well, uh, but also uh, networking, broader networking that I think is absolutely invaluable when you're when whenever you're going to school. Um, you know, the, let's face it, you're going to learn a lot of things and you're going to forget more than than uh, you know than you ever retain. So, the key for 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 me is how do you make sure that you're getting the most out of that program in terms of not only the content but the relationships with people and the life experiences that you're having. 
Yeah, you're preaching to the choir on the forgetting part. My problem is I just keep doing it before the exams. I got <laughs> to just push it off a little bit longer. Um, I'm curious to hear too, though. You talked a little bit about being surrounded by other CEOs and high-level thinkers. Is there anything granular that you took away from there that still carries on today in terms of how you approach running a business or leading people in particular? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think at, at London Business School, I think the biggest thing that I took away was um, just the balance, the overall balance that you need to have as a senior leader. And to be successful in business, especially at the, the, the top level, uh, it's really, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And, and you've gotta make sure that you have the right balance between what you're doing personally, what you're doing with your family, uh, what you're doing in business, in business, you've got to have a balance, not just you know, performing well and delivering the numbers, but you've got to make sure that you're engaging your employees and your, your peers uh, to the degree that you need to. You need to make sure that you're managing upwards or managing to your board of directors, uh, managing to your customers the way that you need to to be successful. So it's not, um, when you're early in your career, you may be able to rely on, on one um, area of expertise to get you to the next level, but once you once you re, uh, achieve a, a senior executive position, uh, it's really really important when you're leading people to to have have that balance. If you don't have that right balance with yourself, with your family, and at work, it's really hard to maintain that level of performance over time. Yeah, I think you know it definitely starts to wear on you don't have time in there for you know family and leisure and uh, things you enjoy um, at, but at, at what point along those lines did you find your family in that in that process like where did you meet your wife was that before London yeah. afterwards yeah so I, I met my wife actually when I was eight years old mm-hmm. um, our backyards were connected. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that <laughs> that was that the answer I was predicting I was like I, 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 you kind of said it and it didn't register with this and I go Wait, what I know. So we we met when we were eight. Our backyards were connected growing up, and we actually started dating in high school. <laughs> uh, we're high school sweethearts and ended up getting married. I got married actually between my junior year and senior year at Northwestern. Did uh, she I think follow I, you? I think I was there? the only one married at Northwestern <laughs> as, as an undergrad. Did she follow you there for college? Or? Uh, so my wife was one year younger than me in school, and so she went two years to Ohio State and took a year off, came up, uh, finished my senior year there, and then she uh, finished up her undergrad at, at uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C., which is why I took a job out there with Mercer Management Consulting in, in Washington, D.C. And then what does she do today? So my wife is so busy with our five kids at home. I was going to say. Uh, she's, her, her job is much tougher than mine. <laughs> it, logistically speaking, with my travel schedule and five kids and activities, it's, it's tough. How many boys, yeah. how many girls? So we have two, three boys are the youngest, and the two girls are oldest. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be a fun time, uh, you know, family dinner or something like that. I can't imagine. Yeah. imagine There's energy everybody. all the time in our house, yeah. all the time. What about the siblings that you talked about? You know, I think something that's really cool and interesting, we talked to a lot of successful people, and you kind of dig into details. You figure out their siblings, like, you know, also went to Harvard, achieved these amazing things. Is it kind of similar with your dynamic? 
So my uh, two younger brothers are, are both doing really well uh, in their own rights. Uh, my uh, middle brother, he's two years younger than me, uh, he ended up studying math and physics at um, uh, Ohio State, and he uh, ended up going the restauranteur route and is a, a general master, a general manager of a, a major restaurant uh, in Indianapolis um, that he really enjoys. And my youngest brother, he really loves technology. So he's out in Silicon Valley. He's done extremely uh, well for himself and and is um, you know in his fourth internet startup out there now. He's a chief growth officer at uh, Hired.com and really enjoys doing that, uh, which is way over my head. I don't know anything about that internet stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. It's but me and Josh both talk about this a lot, and uh, you know, we work at a software startup, but we also really have like this interest in kind of. I, I hate calling them vanilla businesses because that's not the way I like to talk about it. But like old school businesses, you know, that are based around a product and you know selling it and making a profit all the way up, not you know the opposite direction. But I'm um, getting a little off track here. Let's kind of step back into your current role there at uh, Exal. Yeah. And um, what were kind of some of the challenges and uh, <clears throat> maybe focus early on, and how has things kind of changed as you? as you've been there. Yeah, so maybe let me take a big step back on Excel first of all, because I probably should have um, spent a bit more time up front explaining what Excel does. So Excel is the global leader in premium aluminum packaging. Um, we make the extruded aluminum containers for all the major uh, consumer uh, products companies out there, like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, uh, Coca-Cola, ABM Bev. We make uh, containers for uh, brands like Axe, Dove. Um, we do stuff for uh, Neutrogena. Mm -hmm. And our products specifically are, have you ever seen those spray-on sunscreens out there? Mm -hmm. We make all the bottles for that. We make the bottles for the hairsprays. We make the bottles for the air fresheners out there. We make um, bottles for deodorants and antiperspirants. Uh, so all those aluminum bottles that have those really cool graphics on them, that, that's what we make. And in addition to that, we're also making the, the beer bottles for Bud Light and Budweiser, the aluminum ones, and the aluminum premium bottles for Coca-Cola. So it's a really, really cool uh, product line that is, that is growing, and it's highly differentiated. And, and it's really cool right now at this point in time because uh, when, you, when you go to the store, there's just – so much um, of uh, so, so much uh, so much variety on the shelves that consumers are finding it really hard to try to make decisions there. And so uh, these CPGs are looking for ways to get their products to stand out on the shelf. And we're fortunate to have some products that that can help them do that. Yeah, that's a really cool and interesting dynamic. And you see some companies that are taking that and leveraging it to the strength. For example, like Casper, who's developed you know the one the one mattress that you need for everything and these mm -hmm. people are finding their niches in those spaces and i always think the marketing aspect of differentiating your product in a mix of hundreds of SKUs is um, really fun and intricate thing you know a mix of like we do we do it a lot here in terms of like ui ux so it's not so much product on a shelf but it's like how can we psychologically get into our customers mind and get them to take the pathway that we want inside of our you know different aspects of our company so yeah exactly it's exactly. exciting but i'm, I'm curious to hear when you're working in a global company and you're dealing with so many different departments and so many different SKUs and mm -hmm. 
it, maybe you do know all the answers at one time, but I'm assuming that you know it's probably very difficult. You have to rely on other people. So how do you balance between your own intuition and taking feedback from those of your team? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, when I came into this uh, this role back in January last year, uh, this was a, a new industry for me. Although you know I'd spent ten years in the industrial packaging space, this is all consumer packaging, a uh, bit different product line, and. You know, first and foremost is just getting up to speed on the business and understanding um, what customers' needs are in the industry that you're in. So we um, need to understand that, understand our manufacturing process, understand our supply chain, understand all the value drivers within our company and ultimately what keeps um, uh, and, and creates value for our customers ultimately. That being said, it all starts with the team, and you got to have the right people in the right roles, people that you can trust and rely on. Um, and early on when I came into Excel, I uh, found a great opportunity for us to, um, to really take the company to the next level. In fact, it was, uh, the company was struggling a bit um, when I had come on board uh, nearly a month, about a month before I joined the company. Uh, nearly uh, missed its um, covenants on its bank loan. Uh, so we were in a really tough spot. We were having uh, some problems uh, down in South America. We had some struggles up in, in North America as well. And so very early on, I had to uh, get control of the situation. I brought in several uh, new team members on the leadership team. I had to make some changes uh, to ultimately get the business back to where we need it to be. So. It was a combination of relying on intuition, uh, but, but really first and foremost was very quickly trying to understand the fact base and, and, and make some key decisions early on with the input of uh, people on the team. And so when, can you get a time frame on this? Like when did you first uh, join Excel? I joined Excel last year in January. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So we've so been, I've been there, there for, I, what, about 19 months? How right. long did it take yep. you to gain a really deep and thorough understanding of those value drivers and the different processes within the company to you could start making movements that um, were driven by intuition? You know? Yeah, so when, when I came on to Excel, I, I spent my first 45 days, I interviewed the top 50 people in the company, one-on-one -on -one personal interviews, I interviewed every, uh, top 50 people. Second thing I did was I met with the top 10 customers. I met with our top suppliers, and by the time I was finished with that exercise, in 45 days, I knew what all the problems were. I, but, but not just the problems, I knew how to fix them. Uh, not because of me, but because actually, I found that the team had all the answers. And it's amazing what happens when you go out and talk to people, they actually know what needs to be done. And so the key is actually unleashing, unleashing um, that value that these employees have and structuring it in a way so that you can focus the priorities on the things that really matter. And, and that's what we did. That's ultimately what we did. And very quickly in a short period of time, we uh, totally transformed that business. So, you know, we're going on here, we're in, you know, 19 months into this. And in 19 months, we've uh, increased our profitability by nearly 50% in 19 months. And we've done that really a combination of getting the right people in the right roles, focusing the organization on the right things, and um, really focusing on the value. We were only able to do that by actually 
being really clear on what we need to do, do as an entire organization. What I found out early on was that not all of the employees knew exactly what we were trying to do, uh, where we were headed, how we were going to get there, what it meant for them. So I spent uh, my early efforts making sure that everyone was aligned. In fact, um, we, we got really crystal clear on what our vision, mission, values were, but we didn't just do that in a vacuum. We actually went out to all 1,000 employees and got their input on the values of, for the company that they wanted to build, the culture that we wanted to create. And as a result, it's a lot more sticky now because these are the values that everyone came up with together, and now we're, we're marching down the same path. So we're, we're now marching together with one Exol, uh, but not just one Excel, we, we also needed to have a common operating system and a common value creation approach so that no matter where you're at in the organization, you know how we're, we're going to deliver value for our customers. And so we call that the Excel business system. And, and we've been relentless in, in executing that and de delivering value on the commercial side. We call it commercial excellence. On the operational side, on manufacturing, we're, we're deep into driving lean manufacturing and continuous improvement. Um, on the supply chain side, we're really looking at bringing our sourcing and supply chain capabilities together, leveraging that uh, with our suppliers, but also helping our suppliers, uh, helping work with our suppliers to deliver more value for us. So we've got a, a real common system that we're applying that, that involves the right tools, processes, and capabilities that we're trying to drive throughout the entire organization to make sure that we have a solid foundation from which we can grow profitably, profitably grow the business going forward. So that simple yet very um, ingenious technique of just interviewing, you know, the top 50 people within the company, is that something that you kind of took away from your time at McKinsey or doing management consulting? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And then when you were putting people in these management positions, were you pulling those people from your network that you met along the way that you knew were top level performers? Exactly, exactly. So I, I was able to tap into several people that I knew really well, um, brought them in, and um, that was on my management team. I was also, also very fortunate. We were able to make some changes at the board of directors level. Uh, so I brought in the former CFO of Chiquita um, onto my board. I also brought in the former head of manufacturing for all of General Motors um, through the whole company. He's on our board now, Tim Lee. Uh, Rick Fryer is a former uh, CFO of Chiquita, just a phenomenal guy. And, and I was also able to bring in uh, Rob King, who's the former president of Pepsi uh, Bottling Group in North America. So for me, it's all about getting the right talent on board. So we, we did it at the board level. We did it with a management team that we have. I brought in uh, people from, from top companies from, with good experience. But for me, it's, it's not just um, the companies that people work for, but I really am looking for managers and leaders that, uh, especially with our size of business, so we're, we don't have, our, our business isn't a huge business. I mean, we're in that, uh, we're a privately held company, so I don't want to say exactly where we're at, but we're, we're in that $250 million to $500 million revenue range. Um, and for companies in, in, in this size, you need executives that can um, not only uh, lead, but can also do. So I need player coaches, guys that can roll up their sleeves that aren't afraid to roll up their sleeves and get stuff done, uh, but also lead their teams in the process. So those are the type of leader, leaders and managers that, that we have in place. 
you think you would have been able to make the moves that you've made within the company at this point and bring on those board of directors if you guys were public? Um, you know, listen, I, I think uh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's all about tapping into your, your network and your, your talent base to, to get those, those uh, type of people on. So I, I don't think it matters whether it's a public or private company. We're actually in a really fortunate position. I should say that um, one, of the, one of the key reasons why I decided to join uh, Excel is that it's owned by one of the largest money managers in the world. So Excel is uh, owned by Ontario Teachers Private Pension, which manages about $175 billion in capital. They own 60 companies directly. And uh, for me, I really wanted to be in a, a setting where it was owned by a, a private equity uh, company. Now, Ontario Teachers Private Pension is really a, a unique uh, company because they're managing the uh, retirements for all the teachers in Ontario. So their investment horizon is forever. They need to preserve the retirement savings for teachers forever and ever and ever and ever which means that they take a really long-term view on business and they're focused on doing the right thing. And I always wanna make sure I'm working for owners or investors that are, are really committed to doing the right thing, whether it's within the company, whether it's within the environment, whether it's with, with regards to the communities that, that we're serving. Uh, this is really fundamental to me, and I think, uh, you know, ultimately the businesses that are going to be successful and do well are the ones that also uh, do good. Yeah, and I think it comes back to that concept that we talked about a little earlier about individuals who do the right thing are going to yeah. proceed to do well in their career. I think it applies the same way to businesses. Um, but kind of one of the questions that I want to roll into here is, um, you know, and it probably relates back to this an the answer you just gave, but why is Excel? kept its headquarters here in Ohio. You know, you see a lot of companies moving here and there, and you guys are a global company, and there might be tax advantages elsewhere. Um, what's kept you guys here? Yeah, for us, uh, you know, it's a no-brainer. Uh, Youngstown is our headquarters. Uh, we've got a great employee base there. We've got a huge factory. Um, we're committed to the jobs here in Ohio. Uh, and, you know, we've got an incredible workforce. They, they just make phenomenal products. Uh, we've got a great engineering team, a great innovation team up there as well, and we're employing over 400 jobs uh, right here in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, for us, uh, the key is to, to make sure that we can continue to, to stay competitive, which, which we're doing. We're, we're focused on uh, making sure that, uh, that we do that. Now, we're able to supply the entire North American market uh, from Youngstown, which is, which is really, really good. And the products and services that we're making uh, are delivering exceptional value to, to those global customers. And a lot of their filling operations are located in North America as well. Um, we're fortunate in that we have a, a really good uh, competitive advantage uh, locally. Uh, we're always concerned about um, you know, companies from overseas trying to dump their product into the U.S., and we're fighting hard to make sure that uh, that we don't, um, you know, have that impact our business. But we're committed to Ohio and Youngstown and uh, having our operations here. So you're at a point in your career where you're running, you know, a very successful company that's in the right trajectory, and you have a healthy family at home, plenty of kids to occupy your time. 
what does the future look like for you and what are kind of your goals? And I guess, is what motivates you today any different than what motivated you to where you got to where you are today? Yeah, I th I, you know, I, I'm always looking at my career and, um, and, I, and I encourage everyone to do this, is really look at your career in sort of three to five year uh, horizons. Um, and I say that meaning, you know, you need to set some goals for yourself over the next three to five years and, and make sure that you're on the path to achieving those goals. And I set out on a path, um, you know, actually five years ago to say that I wanted to be CEO of a, a private equity-backed portfolio company. And I was fortunate to land this opportunity, but I had made sure that I was doing things in my career at Greif to prepare me for this opportunity. I'm, I'm sitting in my dream job right now. I've, I've worked my entire career for this opportunity that I'm sitting at right now. Um, you know, I'll be 40 years old uh, next month. And Don't look at day over 22. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll be 40 years old next month in October, and I, um, you know, that's an important milestone for me too personally. Um, so I, I realize I, you know, I need to work out a lot more and eat a lot better. Uh, but from a career standpoint, I'm I'm really excited about where I'm at right now. Um, I feel like the business is on a good trajectory and. I'm really looking forward to you know the next five years, um, and then we'll take it from there. Well, cool thing that you know Frankie Haydock told us on his interview, and there's no surprise that he lives his life like this. But he said even the Olympics when he's playing, he never once thought about you know how monumental it was at the moment. He was so caught up in that flow and enjoying what he's doing that you know he reached his peak potential. So I mean, it yeah. sounds like you're at a point where you are just in this flow, and you know. The opportunities are probably pretty pretty unboundless at this point, which is awesome. Yeah, no, I, I just feel, you know, I wake up every day and feel lucky uh, to, to have, first and foremost, a healthy family, um, you know, and for me to be healthy. And, you know, everything else outside of that is just upside for me. So <laughs> if things go well in business, that's great. And, you know, you just got to work hard, make sure that you're passionate about what you do. Uh, which is, I feel like I'm in that, that spot right now. Um, but that being said, you can't be, become complacent either. And, you know, business and life is very dynamic. Um, you know, we, we don't know how long we're going to be on this planet. Anything could happen any day. And, you know, I think it's really important to make sure that you live, live each day to the fullest and make sure that you feel like you're getting fulfill, fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I just try to stay focused on that, take each day at a time, and go from there. Yeah, I think that rolls really well into our final question of the show uh, and centers around the theme of our show, which is live uncomfortably. Um, and that means a lot more, you know, than just putting yourself outside your comfort zone, but it's more of kind of a focus to live your life around. So what do you think of when you hear the phrase, and how does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, so, you know, when I hear that phrase of, you know, living uncomfortably, for me, that, that sums up my career. Uh, because each, each, um, each career move that I've made, I've, I've felt uncomfortable moving into it, whether, whether I've got promoted and thought, you know, man, that job is way too big for me. That's going to be really hard. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Uh, to moving into a new company and saying, what am I getting myself into? But, you know, for me, 
if you're gonna be successful and if you wanna make a difference, it's critical that you are uncomfortable in, in what you're doing. Because if you're comfortable, then you're not gonna do something great. You gotta push yourself to be truly, truly uncomfortable. Um, but you, you gotta do it in a, in a uh, also a, a thoughtful way as well. You can't do it recklessly. I'm not saying be uncomfortable to be uncomfortable in a reckless way. You, you have to make sure that you're taking calculated risks that make sense, that you have um, looked to maximize your, your chance for success in each of those roles. Uh, so uh, if you're not uncomfortable, then you're not working hard enough or, or you're not aspiring to do something as great as you should. And I love that you added the aspect of recklessness in there because I think a lot of people think that they can just kind of find a certain direction, shoot themselves into it, live uncomfortably, but just think that the cards will fall. And there, there does require a little bit more intricacy there than um, I think more, more people put the thought into. So I think that's really unique. Nobody's really answered a question that way. So I like that. Yeah. Hey, well, we re really appreciate your time on the show, Michael. Uh, you have any last words for our listeners before we wrap up here? No, I just want to thank you guys for the, for the time today. I think what you're doing is phenomenal, and it's a, it's great for Columbus, the city of Columbus. Uh, we've got a lot of great entrepreneurs, young uh, aspiring professionals and leaders in this city, and I think uh, you know just sharing the different stories uh, from from the different leaders that that you're talking to is is something that's going to be pretty special. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. And uh, thank you, Conquerors, for listening. That was Michael Mapes, CEO of Exile Corporation, with a lot of great advice and uh, career tips. Uh, if you enjoyed that episode, share it with your friends, and we will talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like 
I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.